So our sermon title today is true. Jesus doesn't need your worship songs. Hmm. Have you ever thought about that? It's true. So why did we just sing three worship songs? Because we need them. Because what C.S. Lewis said is true. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. We praise what we enjoy and that praise completes the enjoyment. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, Rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Sometimes. He continues, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. So, we need our worship songs because we need to express our love for Jesus because when we sing, it completes our enjoyment of God. It's why I tell my wife all the time how much I love her, how beautiful she is, because it completes my enjoyment of her. It's why we talk about movies that we like and sports teams that we like and restaurants that we like, because it completes the enjoyment. So we need to sing songs to Jesus because, one, he is worthy. We just sang that, and we didn't even plan that, Chet, did we? Because he is worthy, number two, because the Bible commands us to, and number three, because it completes our enjoyment of him. Understand this. Jesus welcomes our worship songs, but he doesn't need us to sing these worship songs. Jesus doesn't need anything. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them. In other words, We don't add to God any glory when we sing to him. As if he's at like 97% and then we sing on Sunday morning and then 100%, God has all glory. Come back next week, he might be down to 93%, so we better sing. So 100% glory. We don't add anything to God when we sing. He is self-sufficient. And the theological way of saying that is aseity. 
And that's the undomesticated attribute of God that we will be looking at today. Maybe you've never heard that term before, but I know you understand the idea behind it. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at a little phrase in a sermon that Paul delivered in Athens at the Areopagus. And this little phrase will be the springboard that we will use to look at God's aseity. And what we'll see today is this. God doesn't need you at all. But you desperately need him all the time. God doesn't need you at all. But you desperately need him all the time. It's like you hear people say, God is good. And how do we respond to that when somebody says, God is good? All the time, right? And that is very true. But maybe we should start saying, I am desperate. And people should reply, what? All the time. See, you guys already know how desperate you are. We desperately need Jesus all the time. But he never needs us, ever. He never needs us. He never needs our worship songs. He never needs our service. He never needs our quiet times ever at all. So to Acts 17 we go where we will be humbled by the fact that Jesus doesn't need anything at all. Look at verse 22 and hear the word of the Lord. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything. Here's how the way I picture Paul saying it He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. But did you notice that phrase there, as though he needed anything? That little phrase tells us one very important thing about the God that we love and serve. He is self-sufficient. He has no need of anything. And that little phrase, as though he needed anything, is captured in this little theological word, which is the undomesticated attribute of God that we're looking at today. And the word is this, aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y, if you're wondering how to spell it. Aseity, the word comes from the Latin word a, which means from, and the word se, S-E, meaning that God exists in and of himself or from himself Ah, say, from himself. That's a saity. John Webster says this, God is from himself, and from himself, God gives himself. A saity is life. God's life from and therefore in himself. So God's aseity refers to God's independence in his existence his decrees, his will, 
and his acts. In other words, God and only God determines who God is, what God does, and what God wills. We don't get a say in that matter at all. We do not get a say in what God does. We do not get a say in determining who God is. We do not get a say in determining what God wills. Only God does. So God's aseity means that he is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. It means that he has life in himself. It means that he has no needs at all. He is a God of no needs, which is in stark contrast to us because we have all kinds of needs, don't we? We need food. We need sleep. We need coffee. Some of us need coffee so bad that we are functional zombies until we get said liquid. And you know who you are, and so does your family, right? Anselm talked about God's aseity. He was born an old theologian, born in 1033, died in 1109. Here's what he said describing God's aseity. God has of himself all that he has. That means that God is perfect. He has no deficiencies. He has no weaknesses. He never needs an upgrade. He is perfectly fulfilled and happy in and of himself. In other words, God would be who he is without us, without creation. God would be God. He would be who he is even if he never created anything. That's aseity. He would be who he is even if he never created humpback wells or bearded vultures or tulips or weeping willows or black holes or apple pie or coffee. God exists. God doesn't need coffee. That tells you everything you need to know right there. And God would even still be who he is without creating the angels that fly around his throne and cry, holy, holy, holy. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need an angelic entourage. He doesn't need angels' worship songs either. He needs nothing. He simply is. Matthew Henry said, the greatest and best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says, absolutely, and it is more than any creature, man, or angel can say, I am that I am. So we have to say, by God's grace, I am what I am. But God simply says, I am what I am. That's aseity. Moses discovered this when he asked God what his name was in Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's aseity. I am implies that God is sovereignly independent of all creation. His very name, Yahweh, implies and proves his aseity. 
So one of the first attributes that God reveals about himself is his aseity. He is the God who is. And he is the God who does not need us. In fact, God doesn't need us or anything to be happy. That's humbling. He doesn't need our worship songs in order to be happy. He doesn't need them at all. So we might get up on Sunday mornings excited to sing and worship Jesus, and we should, and that's a good thing that we sing and worship Jesus. We need to do that. But God doesn't need that from us. It's not like God is feeling down in the dumps on Sunday morning and worship somehow lifts him out of the pit of despair. He doesn't need us to sing songs to him at all. He doesn't need us to give him anything. Does he welcome them? Yes. Does he need them? No. As Paul says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God doesn't need our worship songs. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our service. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. A.W. Pink said, God is no gainer even from our worship. It is impossible to bring the Almighty under obligations to the creature. God gains nothing from us. God gains nothing from us. Wow. You can file that under hashtag humbled. God owns everything. So you can't give him anything. And this attribute of God, his aseity, will humble you because God doesn't need you at all. But you desperately need him all the time. Matthew Barrett said, please brace yourself because I have something shocking to say. God does not need you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need anyone or anything in this world. In fact, he doesn't need the world at all, period. God is not a needy God. It's not as if he was bored, twiddling his thumbs, desperately lonely prior to creating the world. God is not dependent on the world for his existence, nor is he dependent on the world for his happiness and self-fulfillment. Instead, he possesses life in and of himself. More precisely, he is the fullness of life in and of himself. It's not like Jesus, you know, I grew up here and Jesus was needy. Oh, he needs you. He's lonely hanging on the cross. He needs a friend. He needs you because the gospel needs to go to the nations and he's just so desperate for you. Would you come join his team? That's how Jesus is often presented as this very needy person saying, please, would you please be my friend? I need you. That's not him at all. God's aseity can bring comfort to us because our God has no needs. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need backup. He doesn't need a bodyguard. He doesn't need a big brother to care for him when he's being bullied by someone. Our God is a God of no needs. Next time somebody asks you, tell me about the Jesus you worship, say, 
He doesn't need anything at all, ever. That'll start a conversation, won't it? He is a God of no needs, and that'll comfort your heart if you slow down enough to take it all in, if you will meditate upon that, if you will think about it and dwell upon it. He has no needs whatsoever. So aseity is a wonderful doctrine. But sometimes we like to hijack God's aseity and think that we can copy him in this regard. We like to think that functionally we are self-sufficient. And we show that we are living like we don't need God when these things are true of us. Prayerlessness, pride, and people avoiding. All those P words. I worked hard at that alliteration right there. Prayerlessness, pride, and people avoiding. We show that we are trying to have our own version of aseity when we don't pray. When we don't feel desperate and needy and don't cry out, help me, Holy Spirit, that's us trying to hijack the attribute of aseity from God. Not praying is saying, I have this attribute of aseity. I have no needs. We're trying to be from ourself, self-sufficient, and that never ends well, right? But pride and lack of humility are also another way that we try to rob God of this attribute. Like when we try to do things in our own strength or in our own wisdom. And then lastly, when we avoid people and we avoid community. When we avoid church. When we avoid our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're telling them, I recently acquired this attribute called aseity. I'll spell it for you if you want. And I have no needs. I don't need y'all anymore. That's silly. We need God and we need community, a church family. He made us this way. It was not good for Adam to be what? Alone. And when you avoid community... And when you avoid fellowship and church family, you are telling others that you acquired this attribute called aseity. You got it on Amazon and it showed up in 24 hours. God's aseity reminds you that you desperately need God. And secondly, that you desperately need the church. So stay needy, friends. Stay desperate. Get involved here. Get connected with people. Join a Bible study, a small group, a Sunday school class. You need people here. God has designed it that way. And if you are avoiding people here, you are telling God, I'm taking a saity from you because I have no needs. Stay desperate because desperation is discipleship. You will never move beyond desperation. You will always need Jesus all the time. As the old hymn reminds us, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. We need Jesus just as much on vacation as we do on a very stressful, busy week full of meetings and projects and deadlines. Let me say that again. We need Jesus on vacation 
as much as we do on very stressful, busy weeks full of meetings and projects and deadlines. I try to remind myself of this every Friday on my day off. I try to say to the Holy Spirit, I need you just as much today as I need you on Sunday morning. We need the Spirit as much on a no plans, lazy, sit around and do nothing but binge watch something day as we do on a hectic, life is overwhelming, there's too much to do and there's not enough time in the day kind of day. We should feel just as desperate on our day off as we do any other time. God's aseity teaches you that you can't give God anything but that he gives you everything for life and godliness, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, that all of life from God is a gift. As Ralph Davis says, the man inebriated with the thought that all he has is Yahweh's gift finds himself repeatedly on his knees, adoring, thanking, praising. But if we do not grasp grace, we plummet into idolatry, for that is the inevitable corollary of self-sufficiency. God's aseity will drive you to your knees where you will adore and thank and praise the self-sufficient God who doesn't need you at all but gives you everything. And in addition to not needing you, God doesn't need anything anything else in creation to be happy or to exist. In fact, God could live without us. He did that, right? For a long time before Genesis 1. He did that for a long time before he created the angels that fly around his throne. But he chooses not to live without us. He chose to do what he did in Genesis 1, not because he somehow needed creation or he needed us, but simply because he wanted to. But why? Why did God even create it all? Answer, because he is love and he wanted to share his love with his creation specifically his elect children. God created out of his triune love in order to share that love with others, namely you and me. So God's love is is the ground or the reason why he created us. Not because he needed, because he wanted to give, because he wanted to share. And so it is out of God's own glorious freedom that he creates. He was never forced to create, No one tied Jesus' arm behind his back and said, Say, uncle, so that he caved into their wishes and created this world. No. Jesus creates out of his own divine freedom. God did not create anything in order to be God. He was complete within himself, and it is this God who is complete in himself and having no need It is this God who decides to create the world, to create you, to share his love with you. And so we were made to enjoy and to respond to and to get swept up in the love that exists between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're we're made to be swept away by this eternal love so that we glorify and enjoy him forever. But it poses a few questions. Because the triune God is a loving, giving, and sharing God, did he need to create in order to love, give, and share? 
Did God have to create in order to experience love? Did he only become loving after he created? Did he create humanity so that he would have someone to love and share his love with? And the answer to all of these questions is an emphatic no. God did not need to create in order to love. The triune God has been loving for all eternity. The three persons of the Trinity express love for one another in eternity past. God the Father has been loving his son Jesus in the spirit for all of eternity. So loving others is not some strange thing for God. Loving others did not start in Genesis 1. God has been loving for all eternity because God is love. Now, standing in stark contrast to the triune God of Christianity is Allah, the God of Islam. Contrast the triune God with Allah, the God of Islam. Listen to how the Quran describes Allah. It says, say not Trinity, desist. It will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. And then it says, say he is God, the one and only God the eternal, absolute. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. Here's what the Quran is saying. Allah is a single person God. He is not a father because he begetteth not, nor does he have a son. Allah is one person, not three. Allah is completely different from the Trinitarian God of Christianity. But it's not just a matter of numbers, one or three. Allah does not dwell in community. He is alone in eternity past. Now, Islam has traditionally asserted that Allah has 99 names which describe him as he has been for eternity. And one of the 99 names that describes him is Al-Wadud, the loving one, the most loving or the most affectionate. So in the Quran, he is called a fount of love and all embracing in his love. But Allah is also called the eternal one. So he's the most loving one and he is the eternal one. So how could Allah be loving in eternity past? How could the eternal one be the loving one in eternity past if he was all by himself. Before Allah created the world or created people, as Muslims claim, there was nothing for him to love. Before he created anything, according to Islam, Allah was alone. So how could he love? He was by himself. Allah cannot, can only love. He can only love if he creates something. If Allah eternally loves his creation, there's a problem, though. There's a problem because if he depends on creation to be able to love, then Allah is dependent on creation, and that goes against a core Islamic belief that Allah is dependent on no one. So how can a solitary, loving God love anyone when loving involves having people to love? How can a God who is dependent on no one have to have people in order to love. Allah must have people in order to be loving. But by needing people to love, he is dependent on them. And so 
Allah is curved inward and yet dependent on people to love. But to love is not to be alone. To love is to love someone. So Allah, according to Islam, had to create people. He had to create people in order to be loving, to be the loving, the most loving, the most affectionate. He is dependent on his creation in order to be who he is, but not so with the triune God of Christianity. God the Father has been loving his son Jesus in eternity past through the Spirit. All that Allah had at his side in eternity, ba- in eternity past was a book, the Quran. According to Islam, Allah had an eternal word at his side, the Quran. Now, on the surface, it looks like Allah was not lonely because he had a book with him. But that's all it was, a book. Just a book of his wants and wishes. That's all he had in eternity past. Now, I know what you introverts who love to read are thinking. That would be heaven. Me, all alone, no one to bother me, no one to talk to, and all I have with me is a book? A book to read and enjoy all by myself? Glory. And all the book-loving introverts said, amen. You're so introverted you wouldn't even say amen, would you? That was Allah, the God of Islam in eternity past, living the dream of every book-loving introvert. Contrary to what Islam teaches, Allah is dependent on created beings. He needs creation in order to be who he claims to be. He needs creation in order to love, in order to live up to one of his names and titles which is the loving, the most loving, the most affectionate. And so, Michael Reeves says this, therein lies the problem. How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving another? Such are the problems with non-triune gods in creation. Single-person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings, and so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be a frustrating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure is looking in a mirror? Creating just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And if such gods do create, they always seem to do so out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. So in contrast to all single-person gods like Allah, the Christian God is Trinitarian. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And there is community and there is love between these three persons of the Godhead. The Father loves his Son in the Spirit. And so before God created the world, what was he doing? What was he doing with all that time? Do you ever wonder, what was God doing? Did you ever think about that as a kid? I thought, what was God doing in eternity past? Millions and millions and millions of years ago. Uh, it made my brain hurt. Because I thought, what was he doing? He was loving his son in the spirit. And that spilled over into his choosing a people to share in that love. As Jesus himself said in John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that they may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus is saying this. God sent Jesus so that we could get swept away like a tsunami with God's love for his own son. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. The triune God loving his redeemed people with the love that he shared in eternity past. And where do we see that love fully displayed? At the cross. The cross of Jesus is God saying, come enjoy our eternal love, y'all. Come and get in on this. So God's aseity then leads us to the cross. The God who needs nothing gives everything. And so the cross is proof that God is a giver. He needs nothing but is willing to give everything, namely his own son, for our sins. And the God who needs nothing actually wants us. The God who needs nothing welcomes us. He desires fellowship and communion with us. As the prophet Isaiah 55 says, it was our call to worship today. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Four times we are invited with the words, come, 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 come. God must really mean it, huh? He's just so persistent here. Not because he's needy, because he wants to give us himself. He's so persistent. And apparently there's not a cover charge either because everything at this party is free which is good if you're broke, right? We don't have to give God anything because he doesn't need anything. He doesn't require anything of us to fill up some need that he has. He is saying to all of us right now, come, everything is free because I've already paid for it all. You don't need to bring anything. I certainly don't need anything from you. Just come and eat. So whoever you are, Whatever you've done, Jesus welcomes you today and he offers eternal life. He offers forgiveness. He offers himself. It's a gift from the eternal, self-sufficient God, an invitation to come just as you are. And the table that is spread before us today is God saying to us, I need nothing from you, nothing Don't even try to bring me anything. I don't take gifts. I need nothing from you, but I am willing to give you everything. So what are you waiting for? Turn from living for you. The biblical word is repent. It means turn from living toward you and turn to Jesus and receive his gift. Come. To all who are weary and need rest, come. To all who mourn and long for comfort, come. 
To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, come. To all who fail and desire strength, come. To all who sin and need a Savior, come. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, come. And to whoever will come, Jesus opens wide his arms to receive you. And he will. He will. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're a giver, that you're not stingy, that you want to share your life and your love with us. Thank you that we don't need to bring anything. Thank you that we can come as we are beat up, burned out, wallowing in sin, desperate, needy. Thank you, Lord, that even when we feel like we can't even muster up the strength to come to you, that you come to us and you pick us up. Thank you. What comfort it is that you need nothing in this world, but that you give everything to us. What kind of God are we dealing with here, Jesus, with you, one who is amazing, all-sufficient, eternal, absolute. We approach this table today, Jesus, and we repent. We turn from living for ourselves. We turn from our own functional aseity where we live like we don't need you and we live like we don't need others. And we repent and we turn from that And we ask you to forgive us and to have mercy on us. And we come to you now for life, for godliness, for everything. Fill us up and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In your name we pray, amen.